On May 25th, 1979, Dennis Waitley was waiting to catch a flight from Chicago to Los Angeles for a speaking engagement. He was late. He was running through O'Hare Airport, wrong airport to have to run through Big Airport plus Garrett's Popcorn. How do you run past that? Terminal 1, Concourse B. You'll thank me. So Dennis Waitley, running through the airport, gets to his gate, gate K-5, just as they close the jetway. You know the feeling. He begs to get on the flight, says, I have a speaking engagement. Uh, They don't budge. And so in his anger, goes back to the ticket counter to register a complaint. 20 minutes later, line hasn't moved when an announcement comes over the airport intercom that American Airlines Flight 191 from Chicago to Los Angeles had crashed upon takeoff. 258 passengers and 13 crew members died in that crash. It was the deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. Dennis Waitley got out of line. He didn't register a complaint. In fact, he didn't return the ticket. I'll tell you what he did. He took that ticket home, and he pinned it on a bulletin board in his office. And every time he would get a little frustrated, a little upset at things that were happening in his life, all he had to do was glance at that ticket. And it was a reminder that life was a gift, a gift not to be taken for granted. That invalidated ticket to Flight 191 is what I would call a life symbol. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. It's a symbol from the past that gives meaning to the present and faith for the future. It's a symbol from the past, gives meaning to the present, faith for the future. We're going to talk about that a little bit this weekend. And listen, this series is going to run right up to Easter. And so we'll double back to it again. If you have a Bible with you this weekend, you can turn to Joshua uh, chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you to stand at all of our campuses, all eight campuses. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. It's the New Living Translation. Verse 1, when all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, now choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take 12 stones from the very place, the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. Verse 19, and the people crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Then they camped at Gilgal just east of Jericho. It was there at Gilgal that Joshua piled up the 12 stones taken from the Jordan River. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, this is where This is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up until, until we had all crossed over. Verse 24, he did this so that all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. You can be seated. It was the Israelites' first night, first night, their first night in the promised land. I mean, they've dreamed of this for 430 years. They are partying like it is 1999 B.C. And I love how God gets them there. Why would you walk around the river when you can part it? I mean, this is a grand entrance. I'll let you into my world for a moment. We have a new tradition. Last couple of years, we've gone out to uh, rural Virginia, and uh, we hit up the Madison County Fair. And they have a demolition derby. And I get on my country, and I pull out my camouflage. And I eat elephant ears, and it's awesome. And this year, Madison County pulled out all the stops. The Orange County skydivers parachuted into the fairgrounds to the star-spangled banner with a flag. That's an entrance. Come on, after 430 years... You better enter in a big way. Red carpet Oscars? No, 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 no. Way bigger than that. Why does God part the Jordan River? I'm going to tell you why. Because he can. I'm going to give you another reason. Because this generation didn't cross the Red Sea. That generation had died. And so God did for this generation what he had done for the generation before. I love verse 23. It says God parts the Jordan River just as he did at the Red Sea. That's why we build altars, because altars remind us that the God who did it before can do it again. That the God who did this can do that. That the God who got us here can get us there. And I say, do it again, God. Do it again. Here's what I believe. If we do what they did in the Bible, God will do what he did. He will renew his deeds in our day. Why? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, if we do little things like they're big things, God's going to do big things like they're little things. If we will consecrate ourselves day in and day out, God's going to show up and God is going to show off. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when and how and where. And so we live with this holy confidence, right? What is God going to do next? What is he going to do next? 
The God who goes before us, the God who works all things together for good, the God who orders our footsteps, the God who prepares good works in advance, the the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. What is that God going to do next? And so we live with a holy confidence. Why? Because he did it before. He can do it again. Here's what I believe for you. During this series, during this Lenten season that leads up to Easter, this could be the greatest season of spiritual growth you've ever experienced. This could be the greatest season of spiritual breakthrough you have ever experienced, but it's not going to happen by default. You got to build an altar every day, and then you got to put yourself on that altar. If you want God to do something new, you can't keep doing the same old thing. Now, let's have a little bit of fun this weekend. How many knew that, know that we uh, made the news this week? I love it. I love it when the good news makes the news. Uh, let me give you the backstory, and then I'm going to show it to you, because uh, we're going to build an altar right here. This is an altar. Uh, in 2007, we hosted an outreach called the Convoy of Hope. Uh, we blessed 10,000 people with 100,000 pounds of grocery and several tons of love. And afterwards, patting ourselves on the back. Doing, in fact, doing that. Like, good job. When God said, now I want you to do it every day. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, it took a year of planning and strategizing. It took 85 churches and organizations to come together to pull that off. And quite honestly, it took um, the leadership of our executive pastor, Pastor Joel Schmidgall, to pull that thing off. And so when God said, do it every day, I thought to myself, how in the world are we gonna pull this off? But God gave us a dream a dream of a DC dream center east of the river. And it was like God said, the Anacostia River is the Jordan River. I'm gonna part it, and if you would walk through it, I'm gonna tell you it took eight years. It took a lot longer, and it was a lot harder than we anticipated. But he who began a good work is carrying it to completion. Uh, You know that we broke ground, and how fun this week. You gotta watch this. So great. All this week, we are showcasing ways faith plays a role in our town. And tonight, I take you to Southeast D.C. where a new living monument is being built. A place where at-risk youth can come after school, where residents looking for homes and jobs can get resources. A place where hope lives and dreams are made. It's a dream come true for Pastor Joel Schmidgel and Ernest Clover. It was an old 30-year vacant, abandoned eyesore in the community. This isn't a dream, but this is the foundation to the dream. They are the foundation for D.C.'s new Dream Center. The vision is, is that it would be a place where we awaken dreams and develop radical dreamers. Under construction and planted in one of the district's high crime neighborhoods. The dream for this new center actually began right behind it 20 years ago at what's known as the Southeast White House, just a few miles south on Pennsylvania Avenue from the real White House. What we do here is 
foster and build community and just be a presence in our community. The Dream Center expands that legacy. Ernest is the director. His staff of volunteers have served thousands of D.C. residents, like single mom Elisa Thornton and her two girls. I can remember one time when I was going through a domestic violence situation, and they helped me find uh, temporary housing. And it didn't stop there. There's my beautiful daughter. Elisa's oldest daughter graduated and went to college after spending 13 years in the center's after-school mentoring program. So a lot of success stories. Oh, it's many success stories. The Southeast White House was there from beginning to the end. In this house where hope has become habit, Darren Crenshaw turned his life around right here after getting out of prison just two years ago. Um, I did seven years. For what? Um, uh, robbery, burglary, um, possession of a firearm. Now he's building a new dream. That's him right there. Part of the construction team on the Dream Center. Since I've been here two months, I've the Southeast White House has actually gotten me two jobs. Part of what we do with people is to tear down walls and then to rebuild up dreams. Esther Joel became part of the team from D.C.'s National Community Church, spearheading this multi-million dollar project. When complete, the Dream Center will feature an indoor basketball court, classrooms, a dance studio, cafe, a rooftop deck, even a recording studio. So we can have 10 Darrens. You know, we have 20 Darrens. We want to have more stories like that. This place will be built because of the generosity of volunteers and people that are a part of this community. It's not government coming in and doing it. It's not one single person coming in. It's multiple people that live in and around this community that have got a vision to see a dream happen. We got a new day coming now. A dream that's been years in the making and very personal for both Pastor Joel and Ernest. I came here as a volunteer in 1999 and I came to to help cook for one of the, the meals that was here. I came here in 2007. I cleaned the house on the weekends. We talk about the statistics of Ward 7 and 8, and they're overwhelming. You know, the crime, the recidivism, the, you know, education. A stat is only a bunch of stories put together. Our heart is, let's change one story. If we can change one story and then another story, we can begin to change statistics. It's one person at a time. Sure do. The Dream Center plans to open in the fall of 2016. The price tag on the project itself, get this, more than $4 million. D.C.'s National Community Church has been able to raise a lot of that through church donations and offerings, which is incredible. And there's still plenty of opportunities to learn more about the church, the Dream Center, donate and volunteer. All you have to do is go to our WUSA 9 mobile app and we will have all the information for you right there. In 2014, Navy Admiral William McRaven gave the commencement speech at his alma mater, the University of Texas. His advice to those graduating Longhorns was this. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. This is a 36-year career Navy SEAL. And he chooses that piece of advice when addressing graduating, they do 10-mile runs with 50-pound packs. They do midnight swims in the freezing Pacific Ocean. They have tactical skills. They have survival skills. And he wants to talk about making your bed. 
Here's what he said. Every morning in basic SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room and the first thing they would inspect was my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers pulled tight, the pillow centered just under our headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. He said it was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning, we were required to make our bed to perfection. Seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of that simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. And he says this, if you can't do little things right, you'll never do big things right. Make the bed. It's a metaphor. Make the bed. Make an altar. Make an altar. Every morning, every evening, hit your knees. Submit yourself to God's word. Submit yourself to God's spirit. Give him the first word and the last word. Give him the first thought and the last thought of the day. And if you do, look out. It's game on. You know, success is not sexy. It's sweaty. Success is not inspiration. It's perspiration. Success is not glamorous. It's grit. Destiny isn't a mystery. Destiny is a decision. Destiny isn't one moment in time. It's daily disciplines. Destiny isn't 15 minutes of fame. It's long obedience in the same direction. Make an altar. Make an altar. I love what Will Smith says. The only thing that I see that is distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on the treadmill. I will not be outworked, period. You might have more talent than me. You might be smarter than me. You might be sexier than me. You might be all of those things. You got it on me in nine categories, but if we get on the treadmill together, there's two things. You're getting off first or I'm going to die. <laughs> That's how the fresh Prince of Bel-Air became one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood. It wasn't on talent alone. It was on the treadmill. Make an altar. Are you willing to die on the treadmill? How hungry are you? How hungry are you for God? How badly do you want more? How badly do you want more of God? Right before God parts the Jordan River, he says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow I will do amazing things among you. You know that's my verse for 2016. That's my word for 2016, consecrate. It means going all in and all out and doing it day in and day out. Your coach this weekend, if you don't take a step forward, you just took a step back. There is no status quo. Either you're growing or you're atrophying. You got to press in and press on. You got to win the day. That's how you win the week, win the month, win the year. If you want to win the game, you got to win the practice. Make an altar. Make an altar. And if you consecrate yourself to God day in and day out, something amazing is going to happen. God's going to show up and show off. 
I want to tell you about a decision I made 25 years ago. It was a pre-decision. I think it's one of the most critical. I, I don't think I've ever framed it this way. In fact, I, I don't know if the importance of it hit me until I stopped and think about it. When I was in college, I made a decision that I wasn't going to leave my gift at the altar. If the altar was open, I was going to be there. Uh, now, the inspiration was Exodus thirty-three eleven. When Moses left the tent of meeting, you can read it, it says that his young aide Joshua stayed there. And I connected the dots. But why, why did Joshua become the leader of Israel after Moses? Because he didn't leave the tent of meeting. Because those who God uses the most spend the most time in God's presence. Because those are the people that know God best, and that's who God can trust most. Now, I've missed a lot of days. Do not bat a thousand. You know, we've been kneeling uh, during this Lent season, right? Every morning, every evening. Can I tell you, I'm not batting a thousand. I missed a couple. But I know that going to the altar is going to make the difference. Now, when I made this decision, I was self-conscious at first. And I don't know your church background. And, uh, you know, um, I get some churches, the altar's right there. You just flip it down and boom. <laughs> a little bit easier. And then there are other churches. You walk all the way to the front. And then there's National Community Church. Theaters. Kneeling in juju bears. <laughs> right? That you're kneeling in. Spilled popcorn and soda. So I know that uh, I think the most important altar is the altar at the foot of your bed, okay? Um, it's, not, it's not abracadabra. There's nothing, this is not magical, but I think it is biblical. And so when I made the decision that if the altar was open, I was going to spend some time at the altar um, I felt self-conscious at first, and I'll tell you why. Because I thought that the people who go to the altar were the people who had the most problems. And what I discovered is it's the people who had the most courage. It's the people who are actually hungry for God, who knew how much they needed God, that they needed him. I know that I need more, God, more of God today than I did yesterday. And I'm going to need him more tomorrow than I did today. And so I decided if the altar is open, I'm going to go. Now, in the coming weeks, I'll tell you about some of those altars. Wow, turning points in my life. You know, a couple of years ago, did a life plan with a life coach. Two days, you identify turning points. And you come up with this map, this storyline of your life. And I was shocked at how many of those 39 turning points in my life happened at an altar. God won't answer 100% of the prayers you don't pray. You won't accomplish 100% of the goals you don't set. Greatest tragedy in life are the prayers that go unanswered because they go unasked. There's a gift, there's a miracle, there's a breakthrough, there's a blessing. It's waiting for you. It's gift wrap. But sometimes you have to take a step of faith and see what God does. A few months ago, I was down in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, speaking at Chick-fil-A headquarters. Got up to speak. They hand me a vanilla milkshake. So you're going to do that to me? I'm supposed to talk and not drink this ice dream right now? Um, afterwards, got a tour of Chick-fil-A and 
went into Truett Cathy's office, which uh, before he passed, it's, it's the same. It's set up the same way, sat in his chair, pretty cool. Saw the toys that he had for his grandchildren in the office and then saw his car collection. Whew, the original Batmobile. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Now you get excited. <laughs> True, Kathy loved cars. And he loved giving cars. I'm going to tell you a little story. He was discipling a young man, a young man who needed a car, but needed discipling even more. And uh, he struck a deal. He said, hey, I've got some uh, tapes of Dr. Charles Stanley. I want you to listen to these tapes. And we're going to talk about them, and we're going to see what God does. And we play a little trick. On the last tape, he recorded over Dr. Charles Stanley, recorded a little message to this young man and said, hey, the keys to your new car are in my office in Atlanta. Kid never listened to the tapes. Truett Cathy kept reminding him, like, you listen to him, day after day, a week, about a month, and he realized this is not going to happen. Literally calls him into his office, sits him down, plays the last tape, but doesn't give him the car. He said it was probably one of the toughest lessons that this kid ever learned and one of the toughest lessons he ever taught. Here's what he said, to receive a blessing, we often have to take action first. Don't leave your gift at the altar. There's more. There's more. There is more. And I need it. I need it. Make an altar every day. Number two, establish celebration rituals. I think this is going to be some fun. Why would you go back into the Jordan River and pick up 12 large stones? I mean, a lot of energy, a lot of time to carry those bad boys out and set them up at Gilgal. Um, why, why would you do that? I'm going to tell you why, because I think sometimes we're, we're so quick to forget what God did last, and, and we're thinking about what God is going to do next, that we fail to celebrate crossing the Jordan River because we're so focused on Jericho. Now listen, Jericho happens next, but I don't think you're ready for Jericho until you fully celebrated the Jordan, until you celebrated what God's done Last, you're not ready for what's next. We need celebration rituals. I mean, that's part of this altars series. All right, the high five, the fist bump, the joystick, the chest bump, touchdown dance, Lambo leap, the ticker tape parade, wedding reception, graduation ceremony, inaugural ball all have one thing in common. They're celebration rituals. They're unique ways of celebrating a touchdown, celebrating uh, a wedding, an election, the end of World War II. I think our culture is better at celebrating than the church. And I have a problem with that. Is it okay if I have a problem with that? Because we have so much to celebrate. We've got to celebrate anything and everything that we possibly can. Uh, Laura and I had one of the, the worst travel days of our life this week. Got up uh, and 5.30 a.m. We're headed to uh, 
SFO, San Francisco Airport. We were out visiting Parker, who had just moved to Santa Cruz. Uh, if you know a place for him to stay, let me know. <laughs> Man, like the only place on the planet where the real estate is more expensive than, than D.C. So we headed to the airport, and I get a phone call. That's the day, of course, we had the little, little uh, weather uh, in D.C. And so um, our flight is canceled. And we get on another flight. That flight is canceled. And then we get on another flight, and we can't get to the terminal in time to get checked in. And so we get on another flight, but we're thinking we're not going to make it to D.C. And so we get a flight to New York. Now, the reason why we got to get close to D.C. at least is because we got a home alone scenario on our hands. <laughs> My 14-year-old Josiah is back from youth retreat. I'm not saying we didn't have a backup plan, but we got to get home. And so we get to New York, and uh, 9.45, last flight into Dulles, and there's a delay to 11 and a delay to 12. I'm just going to tell you what happened. Um, I'm not even going to mention the airline. I'm not going to mention the initials of the airline, but it was JetBlue. (laughs) (laughs) At midnight, the plane comes into the gate. Agents like, hey, plane's here. We're going to get them to deboard. We're going to get you. And the next thing I know, Boston gets our plane. It's midnight. When's the next flight? Tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, thank you very little. We rent a car. We get home at 430 AM. Now, the beautiful thing is, you know, Josiah wakes up, didn't know the difference. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you something. We stayed positive 98% of the time. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. 2% of the time, negative. <laughs> Very negative, but 98. I, I, I don't even know if, if my wife, Laura, meant to say this, but we... we it just, it got so ridiculous that um, we just kept finding silver lining here, silver lining. At one point towards the end of the night, she called, she gave me a new nickname, Silver Lightning. <laughs> I don't even know if she meant to set it, but we were so tired that it just kind of came out that way. <laughs> this is huge. Your focus determines your reality. You can't tell me that there isn't something that you can find to celebrate. Okay, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I believe that our greatest shortcoming is not not feeling bad enough about what we've done wrong. I think our greatest shortcoming is not feeling good enough about what God has done right. That's why we preface worship sometimes at our campuses. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Now listen, if you underestimate sin, you devalue grace. This is not that. I'm just saying that God is gooder than good, greater than great. We have so much to celebrate, and it starts at the cross of Christ. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe, and I'm debt-free spiritually. It's all I need. It's all I need. I'm in right relationship with God. Uh, Six times in Romans 4, uh, this little phrase, credited as righteousness, Okay, a little bit of teaching right here. This is important. Stick with me. Uh, It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If something's repeated six times in scripture, you better drill down. 
This is the Greek word legizomai. And it's an accounting term. It means to impute. But let's put it in uh, our vernacular. It's to make a deposit in someone else's account. It's a wire transfer. Let me paint a picture. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is to um, pay for someone else's meal at a restaurant and surprise them. So last month, we're at a diner, and uh, Laura and I, in a minibus from the retirement home, pulls up. I love old people. <laughs> They're walking in in their walkers. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way you're walking out of here without a blessing. Now, I was real generous. I would have told them before they ordered. <laughs> I didn't. I'm going to tell you why, because I, I, I love those moments. I usually don't get to see it because I'm gone. It's a hit and run. But I love thinking about those moments where they're getting ready to pay the bill and the server comes up and says, the bill's paid. Oh, I like, that's legizomai. Your bill is paid. Christ picked up the tab. It's a free meal. It's a free ticket. He paid the tab at Calvary. If you have nothing else to celebrate, you have that, and that's enough, more than enough. Your balance sheet spiritually shows no liabilities. And the righteousness of Christ shows up on your account as an asset. Let me talk about celebration rituals. A few quick ideas. One, that's why I keep a gratitude journal. Uh, it's a celebration ritual. I'm on number 97 for 2016 because every day I try to find something to celebrate. Uh, it's why we share wins at our staff meeting. Let me tell you what it is. It's borrowing emotional energy from the successes so we can overcome the failures because they're going to come. So I need to borrow from here to get past here. Um, Do you know that the Talmud says that whatever we fail to thank God for, it's as if we stole that blessing from God. Whatever you don't turn into praise turns into pride. We better make sure that we're celebrating the win. By the way, it's why we're doing a 20-year celebration at Constitution Hall on October 30th. Uh, I went and saw it. Lived here for 20 years. I'd never seen it. It's awesome. Uh, I posted an Instagram if you want to see it. You can find it. Pretty cool. Uh, It's why our family does a special dinner every time a a new book releases. So I just finished Chase the Lion, 10-year sequel to End a Pit with the Lion on a Stowy Day. Sent it to the editor, and uh, it'll release September 6th. I'm going to make a prediction. On September 6th, I will be ordering a filet mignon. with extra butter sauce and a blue cheese crust. From a restaurant to my favorite names when put together, Ruth Chris. Why? Because I learned that my personality is I'm always thinking about what's next. But you gotta celebrate what God did last so that you're ready for what's next. Here's... Here's what 
what uh, is so fascinating. I just read through the book of Leviticus. And uh, <clears throat> for a lot of people, uh, Leviticus is the toughest book to get through because of all the rules and regulations. But that's a misreading. There are some amazing rules and regulations. I'm going to share one of them with you. Leviticus 23, 39. Celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days, seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. The eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. And it continues, rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days. You get in the point, seven days. Now I'm just gonna ask you a question. When was the last time you celebrated anything for seven days? <clears throat> Let me prove my point. Any Broncos fans? We'll pray for you. <laughs> the Broncos fans I know, two minutes after the Super Bowl, is Peyton Manning going to retire? Yeah. And are we going to be able to re-sign our free agents? Are you serious? You just won the Super Bowl. You need to celebrate for seven days. My point is this. How amazing... This is like a command to eat cupcakes. <laughs> Celebrate more. You're not celebrating enough. Come on. Let's giddy up. Let's celebrate. <laughs> this is unreal. God is not a killjoy. He's the God who mandates a week-long celebration three times a year. Oh, and by the way, like, like this little tidbit too, Deuteronomy 24, 5, any engaged couples, you're going to like this. If a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, one year, he is to be free to stay home and bring happiness to his wife. Now that's what I'm talking about. That's another sermon for another day. Oh. I, I can't do this for you. You got to do it yourself. Here's the challenge. Take inventory this week. Look at your life. If it helps, look at ages and stages. Look at people in your life, defining moments, defining decisions, successes, failures, mistakes, miracles, do an inventory of your life. Winston Churchill, Churchill said, the farther backward you, you look, the more uh, likely or the, the further you are likely to look forward. You got to look back. It's the faithfulness of God that gives us faith for the future. Yeah. Build an altar every day, but figure out what are those altars? What are those life symbols? What do you need to put on the bulletin board? Take three hours this week. Take three hours. Tape your three favorite programs. And then DVR it and skip the commercials and you got three extra hours. I just bought you three hours. And take an inventory. This series is gonna go till Easter but you gotta start doing the groundwork now. Here's what we're gonna do this weekend. Was gonna end with a song. We're not, we're gonna end with a story. And it's a celebration. I feel like we're not quite done. This is it. When this is over, we're done. Um, 
powerful story from a family that attends our Kingstown campus. Uh, I wanna, want you to watch this. All of our campuses and our campus pastors are gonna come, just pronounce a blessing on you, and we're gonna celebrate. Life has a funny way of putting things in perspective. So at this moment in our lives, uh, the leukemia was the least of our worries. It was. When they came in for rounds and they went through his concerns and they would order them from the most uh, serious to the least. The last thing was always, oh, by the way, he has, he has leukemia. leukemia. Oh, by the way, <laughs> just a thing. Um, but the treatment for that was going pretty well and then he, in February he got a fungal infection. Right, so now we're compounding issues. Um, yeah, so he had the cancer, the HLH, and the fungal infection. And, and then it was when it was very serious. Yeah, because all these, aside from it being, all of these things in and of themselves are life-threatening conditions when you add them all up together and have them. And you're seven. That's a problem. Uh, when Michael was in kindergarten, the spring of his kindergarten year, and he was just a regular kindergarten kid playing baseball and soccer, and we started to notice that something was just not quite right. He was unable to run the whole length of the soccer field, um, throwing the bat when he would hit, because he just, something just wasn't right. Um, and so I took him to the doctor. He had a low-grade fever after a soccer game and the doctors told us he was fine, sent him home. And the next morning he woke up and he was screaming on the landing of the house. And I got rid of the other kids and rushed him to the doctor, the emergency room to the doctor. And um, they took a chest X-ray and found a mass in his chest. I guess the doctor came in right after that and told us that they thought he had leukemia and he started chemo the next day. He spent 10 days in the hospital initially, mm -hmm. and then they told us probably a month. He came home in 10 days, and you would never have known that he had, that he was sick. He didn't skip a beat. Um, yeah, I think for the first, uh, first couple months, we thought this cancer thing ain't gonna be that bad. Yeah. What they didn't tell us, what we didn't know is that uh, leukemia treatment for girls is two years and for boys is three years. And so that's a year of uh, fairly intensive and heavy chemotherapy and, uh, and then two years of follow-on maintenance. And so uh, we went through the fall experiencing you know, the normal, normal, the, uh, the usual chemo cancer type of things hair loss, weight loss, low energy. In January, you're supposed to start the routine maintenance the therapy. And so it was the, the night before Christmas Eve in the middle of the night, and he woke up with a fever, which the protocol is it's automatic, take him to the emergency room and admit it for antibiotics. And, um, and then the fever didn't go away. Did not go away. So we did uh, Christmas and New Year's, and we still had this fever. And, uh, and they wheeled him in for bronchoscopy mm -hmm. to figure out what it was. And when I, and I wheeled him into the OR, and I came out, 
and there was four doctors waiting for me when I walked out of the OR. And they said, we figured out what's wrong with your son. And I remember thinking that was such good news. Like, yeah. they figured it out. Um, he said he has this thing called HLH. Don't Google it. Mm. <laughs> I should have known right then. Um, it's up. rare and it's highly fatal and all those things that you don't want to read. Um, yeah. So essentially it's, um, Second, a, sec, a secondary cancer is, is a, a way to describe it. Your body has an uh, <clears throat> improper reaction to um, an infection. And so he wouldn't stop a fever and his body was eating his own red cells. And right. So and so the body just keeps doing that until it kills your organs yes. and you die. Um, but so we'll try this. Steroids and chemo and they sent us home and he was doing great and we thought everything was going to go well and we thought it was gone they sent us home after three weeks yes. three weeks in the hospital and they sent us home and then we were going to go back and start maintenance mm -hmm. and they said we lied <laughs> not we lied but yeah. his his platelets are falling it's not working it's not working we have to go back to the original therapy of the chemo and everything um he through the this process michael when we were, when he was at his sickest, lost about 40% of his body weight. He was, I think the slowest he was, was like 32 pounds. Yeah, so he's lost about 40% of his body weight. And then they put him on the steroids and then he gained, so he went from 35 pounds to almost 60 pounds. And he was so swollen that you could only see the little slits in his mm. eyes. And he was so heavy that he couldn't walk and he was in a wheelchair and we had to pick him up to take him to the bathroom and carry him up the stairs. And however we laid him in bed at night to go to sleep is how he woke him up in the morning because he couldn't move at all. We prayed for him and my family prayed for him and our church prayed for him and our neighborhood prayed for him. A lot of NCCers uh, provided meals. They did, uh, they did the walking prayer, right? And I didn't find out about it until later, but they yeah. were just coming and walking through our neighborhood and praying for Michael. And remember, and Dr. Newton said, when you come back for HLH, there's like eight different things. And, and some go up and some go down. And at the end of the treatment he was on, it was going to be a mixed bag. It was going to be very hard to tell if, if the treatment he was on worked or not. And, and when we went back after at the end of the eight weeks, his doctor came out and said, they all, all his numbers are where they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. They all went in the right direction. I was not expecting this at all. Um, and we're going to start him on the regular leukemia treatment again because the HLH is gone. Um, and so we did, and it was a miracle. What we, what we didn't know at the time when he was originally diagnosed in January was that Having T-cell leukemia and HLH as an underlying condition, um, 11 people in the, uh, this area have had that condition in the past and only one of them has lived. So after that, he started maintenance, and he started losing the weight, and 
He was in a wheelchair and a walker, and then just a walker, and then just walking really slow with help. Um, and then back on his baseball team, and he climbed the rocky steps in Philly, and he stood at the top and he cheered. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot of good moments since then. And then we picked a Make-A-Wish. Mm-hmm. And then he decided he wanted to meet Peyton Manning. So Michael and I met him. Uh, it was uh, it was great. Michael Michael's face lit up. We got a ton of pictures. And, uh, Everything was like we got off the airplane and the man was holding a sign mm -hmm. for Michael with yeah, his name on it. Some personal and, cheerleaders. Yes, and then we got to the hotel and they had. Yeah, so the, the, the elation, um, watching the pure joy um, on his face. <laughs> and they won the game, right? With like 20 seconds left, there was like a fumble or something. And you picked him up. Yeah. And I got a picture and he's just cheering and you're yeah. cheering. And, yeah, and, and that's probably, that's probably, <laughs> if one picture is worth a thousand words. That was that it. Would that would be the one. Yeah. Um, right before Michael got sick, I was reading my devotions in the morning, and I read, Be Joyful Always, and I wrote it down. And that was, that's what I held on to, that whatever the doctors came in to tell me, I could find some joy in this, and that it wasn't about um, what I was, what I was praying for, that God do this or do that, that it was, it was his plan and it was his path. And it was up to us to find the joy in what was happening to us and what was happening with Michael. And we will be joyful no matter what, because um, God has a plan for us and he has a plan for our family. And I knew that his plan was not just for Michael to be sick. And I believe that Michael being sick is going to help find a cure and that the money that people are raising is um, is going to help other families not have to watch their child go through what we went through. Um, and I can find a lot of joy.